Life is a canvas. Listen as Dr. Allison R. Tendler and her guests paint the stories of entrepreneurs, executives, and business leaders on her podcast, The Art of Seeing Clearly. Through insightful questions and thought-provoking conversation, Allison and her guests explore the essence of what it means to truly experience life, business, entrepreneurship, love, success, and even failure through a clearer lens. I'm your host, Dr. Allison R. Tendler, board-certified ophthalmologist, surgeon, owner, and CEO of Art Vision and Artisan Skin and Laser Center. I literally get to work every day to help people see better on the 2020 eye chart. But true clarity in life and in business often requires a slightly different kind of vision. I happen to have a passion for learning how other entrepreneurs and leaders find their clarity, and I want to share with you some of their secrets to success. Ricardo was born in Florence, Italy, and grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. Mary Beth, a Sioux Falls native, ventured to the East Coast as a nanny and then nursing school in Somerville, Massachusetts. The two met, fell in love, and became engaged on Martha's Vineyard Island. Moving back to Sioux Falls in 1999, the two share the art of hospitality, have grown their love for the restaurants and wine industries, and welcome everyone into their family, along with their three sons, Dante, Barrett, and Jackson. The R in our wine bar is for Ricardo and Revier, Mary Beth's maiden name. Ricardo and Mary Beth are passionate about one thing, people. They believe that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Every employee in each of their restaurants is hand-picked and personally trained to engage with every guest that walks through the doors. With a curated wine list, local craft beer on tap, and traditional menu strategy, Ricardo and Mary Beth were thrilled to bring several restaurant and wine bar options to downtown Soup Balls. In 2023, Ricardo and Mary Beth created the Vineyard Restaurant Group, a dynamic collection of dining establishments, including our wine bar and kitchen, Brick's Wine Bar, Vespa Catering, and Marabella Restaurant. Under their leadership, the group has grown to include a diverse portfolio of restaurants, each presenting a unique culinary experience. From exclusive fine dining to trendy everyday eateries, Vineyard has become interchangeable with culinary excellence, wine education, and innovation. Ricardo, so happy to have you here on The Art of Seeing Clearly. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. This has been an interview I've really been looking forward to. You and I were out on the sidewalk outside Marabella's one night, and you started telling me some of your story, and I was like, oh, people need to hear some of this. And some of the things I'd never heard before, completely unrelated to the wine industry. So you're originally from Italy, correct? I was born in Florence, Italy. Born in Florence. Beautiful place. Well, most people stay in the world. Well, so it's good shopping, too. <laughs> good food, good shopping. It's got it all. It's got it all. Yeah. yeah. No, we, yeah, so I was born there. And then when I was five, so my dad is the oldest of four boys. And the, the okay. story goes back even further. He was born in uh, Aleppo, Syria. So he grew up in Syria. When he turned 18, and there were a lot of civil war conflicts. Okay. His parents decided as soon as our oldest is 18, we're going to. We're going to leave. We're getting out of Syria. Nice. And so they fled Syria uh, and they went to Kuwait, which at the time was neutral. I was going to say, which is better? No. Well, yeah, surely this is like yeah. in the 50s. Yeah. Okay. Shortly thereafter, they the Kuwait allied with Syria. So there there was military place everywhere. And so it was it was like one of those, you know, like a movie where we have to leave now. Where are we going? And so my dad being 18 was the oldest. He always wanted to go to Italy for some reason. And so he said, well, I'm jumping on the ship and I'm going to Italy. And the other three brothers went with my grandparents because they were younger. And we had already had relatives that had moved to like Toronto, Canada, okay. and Boston area. And so they went to Boston. Okay. My dad jumps on the ship, traveling up Mediterranean. And all of a sudden he hears a loudspeaker, Bashir, my dad's name is Bashir, Bashir Travolsi, report to the captain's quarters. And so he thought to himself that they found me. And so he's walking up to the captain's quarters and he's about to open the door. And he says to himself, if I open the door and there's military police in there, I'm going to jump and just take my chances. I mean, this is a different time. But yes. anyway, opens the door and his his cousin, Marcel, was there. His cousin goes, Bashir. He's, at this point, he was almost having a heart attack. And he goes, what, what are you doing here? And he said, oh, the captain's one of my friends. I, and just, I said, oh, let me see the passenger list. And I saw your name. So I have him calling up here. And he was leaving and going oh, to Italy as well. Goodness. 
So this yeah. is made for a movie. It kind of is. So, so the two cousins they moved to Florence. They don't know anybody. They don't even know the language, and they just they just learn everything. And they both meet their wives. They both have kids. So me and my my second cousin Charlie are like two weeks apart. He lives in Canada now, by the way. And anyway, so I'm five years old, and through about 13 years of my dad being in Italy, he kept in touch with his family. Of course, this is you know airmail. You know, it's all written yes. letters. And they said, hey, you should bring your family to America. This is the land of opportunity. We started a business. You know, we're all mechanics. We all work on foreign cars. And that was something that was in demand because they worked on, you know, Volvo and BMW or Mercedes. And they had a little gas station with a mechanic shop. So my dad said, all right, let's do it. So he took my mom, me. And then the, the kicker is my mom's mom, who had never known anything but Italy, said, well, I want to come too. <laughs> so I So your Italian grandmother wanted to didn't speak a word of English. Yes. Uh, so we so I had the I call it the luxury of growing up with not just my mom but my grandmother. Twenty four hours a day it cooked. And there was always something simmering or braising or boiling or fried. There's always something happening. The joke when I was in high school was all my friends want to come to my house because my house always smelled good because <laughs> of all the cooking. Yeah, my little grandmother just she, she learned a few words of English by watching soap operas. That's all she learned. Uh, so, so that's how I made it to the U.S. when I was huh. five years old. And yeah. so you come from a you know a family truly of entrepreneurs in a way. Mm-hmm. They did that Absolutely. because that was their trade, but also to survive, and that was how they're going to make their way you in know, the United States. I I really didn't know it at the time because I started working by ten years old pumping gas, you know, and during the summers for a tip. Of course, this is back when you know they a ten dollar bill for a fill up, you know. Yeah, fill my tank and they get a tender belt. I kind of learned at a young age, really not realizing that my dad would get up at 5 30 every morning and he'd get home at 6 30 every night. And that was a daily occurrence. And so our our family day was always Sundays because mm-hmm. we were closed on Sunday. It's funny or not ironic, I suppose, that our businesses are closed every Sunday as well. And it's just one of those days we just cherish all together our whole family. So yeah, so I just kind of uh, didn't know I was learning by example, but I, I was. Sometimes you don't see those things until, you know, you look mm-hmm. back at them. Absolutely. How do you think that impacted you and what you uh, do today and who you are today? Working and starting working at, at a young age. I really seen the fruits of my labor. It's funny. I still remember my grandfather who you know, ran the business until he couldn't. He would write the checks every week to vendors and also for payroll. And every time I went in to get my check, it, 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 you see the strain in him writing out a check to his grandson. Like, Paying him because he should just hey. be doing this. Well, I mean, think about it. my grandfather. This is a generation. Yeah, you know, you, the family works because you're supposed to work for the family, not because you're earning money. Anyway, so it turned into this kind of just running joke between us. We're like, oh, take your time. You know, I call him Jiddo. So that's Arabic for grand, grandfather. But yeah, just working at a young age. And then as I progressed in, through high school and in college, they always had three jobs. It was just ingrained in me to not just be working, but also mm-hmm. always be working to save money to, you know, build a future. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I did all sorts of different jobs. This kind of segues into what I was doing before I ever thought about the restaurant business. Yeah. So what is what you know? So you have had a grandmother with food. You've got other family that we've got mechanics. I mean, did you clearly you're in the food business now? But did you always think that that's where you're going to be? No, not at all. My my family again very traditional. I'm the oldest. Okay. Child, I'm also the oldest grandchild. And so, a lot of responsibility on those shoulders. In that culture, it's, <laughs> well, you're the oldest boy. Like So, out of the blue, everyone's like, Ricardo, you're going to go to medical school. Well, you know, it, it's one of those, you know, you always, we say this, my wife and I say all the time, we want our kids to be mm-hmm. better version. They didn't want me to be a mechanic. They wanted something better for me. And so, they just kept pushing medical school. So, of course, in, in high school, I took every AP class I could take. It took over there was SATs, and then they had, I forget their college achievement test or something like that, just yeah. to get more credits. So I got accepted early into Tufts University, which I'm sure you're familiar with Tufts. I, I am familiar with Tufts. Yes, a very uh, prominent very medical, medical, you know, so yes. Pre med at Tufts, taking biology and organic chemistry and lots of other fun courses. <laughs> in the meantime, in college, I worked for uh, Lawrence Memorial Hospital in Medford, Mass, which happens to be where I met my wife. So this is where the story then intersects. Yeah, my wife's story. She was born and raised in Sioux Falls at 18, decided that's the connection. I okay. want to go somewhere beside, I wanted to explore, you know, what else is out there besides South Dakota? She's lived here her whole life. 
What era was this? When kind of was it? This is the 1990. Okay. And she had a friend who had moved from South Dakota, had moved to Boston to be a nanny. And the family she was nannying for had friends that were looking for a nanny. And they're like, where'd you find her? She's amazing. And they're like, you find them in South Dakota. You find yeah. these amazing people so in they South asked, Dakota. They asked my wife, Shane Mickey, hey, do you have any friends that, like you, that would be maybe interested in moving into Boston and nannying? And so first person she called was Mary Beth. And she said, you have to come out here. How great would it be? Because they were best friends in high school. How great would it be for us to be in Boston together in nannying and living life? And so my wife took the punch. She accepted the job. She was a nanny for about a year since then for one little boy and saved up enough money to personal through And you met her in that. Oh, and like, and you met her in that. Not that'll have. Okay. So her dream was to go to become an RN. So yeah, so she went to Somerville Hospital School of Nursing and she was, we were very like-minded. She was also working two or three jobs and so was I. The job I found, well, this job at Lawrence Memorial was one that my mindset was, what can I do and earn money before classes even start? Like how early can I go in? And so I was at, at the hospital <clears throat> working as a phlebotomist because phlebotomy, I'm sure you're very familiar, a lot of fasting blood sugars and a lot of fasting. Things blood, that you blood need blood to get done very early in the morning. I to get done at 6 a.m. or 6.30. You want to get that little blood poke and get that refill and, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> and on the else to me, Mary Beth had the same thought. What can I do before classes start? Nurses. Wow. So she went there. I went there. We met each other and they literally, the, our boss told us, you two are going to be drawing all the blood work every morning, Monday to Friday. And we were like, okay. So you were business partners way back then. Way back then. Yeah. Yeah. We always were together. <laughs> Side note, the very first time I ever met her, was, I introduced myself. I said, oh, I am Ricardo. And she goes, I'm Mary Beth. I have a boyfriend. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. I knew I had a chance to say it. She said that. No, but uh, we were best, I mean, we, we were best yeah. friends that, for two years because okay. we worked together. And I imagine seeing the same, you know, that was the first person I saw every morning, right? I get up, get to work, she's there. And so we're, yeah, we tag team or we're drawing all this blood, but we're up, but we're talking and building friendship. Uh, we used to go on double dates with other people. And then the next day I'd say, well, why with that guy? And she'd say, well, your girlfriend's kind of bitchy. And, and we were right. And every time we would describe like our perfect mate, we were describing each other. Describing each other. Yeah. Until, so timing, you know, yeah. that's a, another so story. What happened with medical school? So yes, so Mr. Smarty Pants. Nurse stuff. You have to finish up at Tufts, and I knew I wanted to go to. I mean, I got into Tufts early, and my bum to Tufts Medical. That's just yeah, all there is to it. And I think I don't know. Part of it was everything just came easy to me, like mm-hmm. school, like school. I could never came easy in sports. I was most, I played soccer at, at Tufts. Played college. Mm-hmm. It's just everything I did. I thought. I excelled at. And so for me to go to my interview at Tufts, Tufts Medical and for them to say, hey, you look really good. You're all rounded. You're this or that. You're that. We just have a lot of Tufts students already accepted into Tufts Medical. And an autonomy that like, after talking to other people, you know, advisors and other doctors, they said, well, you know, Tufts doesn't want to become known as, you know, they just funnel Tufts students into the medical school. And so they, and this is again, the 90s, they went, it was all about diversity. How diverse can we make our medical school class? And that includes where students are coming in from around the country. Where they're from the country, international students, and all of that stuff. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to apply again. This time I'm going to broaden my, because I only, I only applied to Tufts Med. That's how confident I was. And so I applied to, you know, BU and just Northeast New England. Didn't get in the second year. And at this point, by the way, I went back and took more classes. I went to Harvard which a lot of people don't know this. I don't talk about this. My wife likes to talk about it. I'm like, don't even tell people. Because yeah. there's a, this like- There's this this thing <laughs> about it, yes. Yeah. But I did a post-baccalaureate program. Oh, it's a stigma in a different way. Yeah, yeah that's it. it was just a post-baccalaureate program in in neurobiology. And just, just to, again, to get something else I could put on my resume that maybe- that would stand out. Not that it, w- it wasn't enough that I was first-generation immigrant. Immigrant. Mm-hmm. With good grades, good- well, uh, well rounded, well spoken, all that stuff. But dress nice. <laughs> Which always <laughs> helps you have a sense of class uh, and style. <laughs> so I didn't get in the second year. So the third year, I'm like, all right, one more time. And I applied all over. I mean, Ohio, Texas, wherever. Didn't get in the third time. And so at this point, I'm like, all right, so here I am. I'm the oldest 
on the on the role model, I have all these cousins that are looking up to me, like, oh, he's going to kill the doctors. In the heart. It was really hard to swallow at that time. And, you know, at the, at the same exact time, I'm developing a serious relationship with Mary Beth, and I'm serious about her. And so we're talking about the future. I'm like, but what, what should I do? And she's like, well, what about, what about going to grad school instead of medical school? And so I said, all right, well, let's get married. I literally kidnapped her. I took her to Martha's Vineyard and on a ferry. And she's like, what are we doing here? And I'm like, I'm like, oh, I just, I just want to see the island. And, it was, and she loves, it's like her favorite place on earth. She loves Martha's Vineyard. And, and I popped the question there. And oh, bluffs. And that was in 96. So in 97, we got married and we decided we were going to move to Houston, Texas. I felt like I needed to just get out of Boston mm-hmm. and not necessarily get away from family, but just get away from that pressure, find myself, find ourselves as a couple. And and one of Mary Beth's older siblings lives in Houston, so we knew we'd have familial support there. It wasn't like we were just going to someplace random. But I got a job doing traumatic brain injury research at the Texas Medical Center in Houston. And I figured, okay, I'm going to be around all these PhDs. I'm going to you know, figure out what I really, what I really want to do. In the meantime, my wife became a charge nurse at a clinic, her favorite job ever. She loved it. But we just, Houston, you've been to Houston? I actually only like to fly in and fly out. I've never done anything there. Yeah, it was just okay. I mean, it's hot and humid. Yeah, that's what I hear. All the time. But it, it just wasn't for us. Versus, versus South Dakota, love the cold no, 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 in the winter, have, right? But the biggest motivating factor for us to move to Sioux Falls was Mary Beth's other sister, who lives, who's always lived here in Sioux Falls. Had her second child, and Mary Beth was in tears that we couldn't be here for the birth because she couldn't get the time off, this and that. So here I am, Sioux Falls. No job. Don't know anybody except for my wife and her family. No, now, right, no job. I looked up soccer in the yellow pages. This is back when we used yellow pages, by the way. And, and I saw um, Dakota Gold was listed. So I called them up and I got into, co- I, so I started coaching for a team, which I loved. But I had to get a real job. And so I said, well, let's say I have a degree in psychology, so maybe I'll just look at that. And so I called up back then it was Sioux Valley. And so I was a mental health counselor. I did group therapy for, God, I started, I started with uh, kids, then adolescents, then adults. And I ended up, the, the whole gamut, I ended up in geriatric psychiatry. It was a locked unit at the old Sioux Valley Hospital, working with psychiatrists, psychologists, nurses, with, you know, uh, patients with dementia, depression, anxiety, that kind of thing. So I did that for a while. Yeah, okay, <laughs> so you've done all this. You moved back to Sioux Falls. We didn't start the restaurant. Libby, we haven't started that yet. We were pregnant with our first child. My wife was an RN on pediatrics. She had to go on bed rest. And so I'm like, well, I'll pick up a second job because that's not that's, foreign to me. No, nope, but you do. Three jobs, whatever. Yeah. So of course I go, what should I do? And she goes, what about that Italian restaurant in town? I'm like, what about it? You speak Italian, right? Like, well, yeah, she goes, you're Italian. I'm like, I've never worked in restaurants. This is like a prerequisite. So I go down and sure enough, I walk in, meet the manager and he goes, you're Italian? And I said, yeah. Now this is in late 1999 in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I'm probably the only Italian in, in the whole state. And so he goes, well, you're hired. And I'm like, I don't know anything about restaurants. We'll teach you everything. Don't worry about that. How do you pronounce this this word in our, in our menu? I mean, so I mean, what was that word? Gosh, what was it? I can't. I can't. But I probably was probably a tiramisu. Everyone was well, even spazia. I mean, it's pronounced spazia in Italian, but you had to make it pronounceable it, for the Midwest. for the English, you know, um, Midwest people. Which is where, of course, I met you originally, way back in the late nineties. Remember those something into something into spazias or spazia? Now that I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think you were there every Sunday. We were there a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. So our area. Yes. Always to sit in the bar so then I didn't have to wait. Yes. Open exactly. table. So way to get in. sit in and then I don't have to wait. That was a sunny brunch. So, so that's where that's where we first met. And so that unbeknownst to me at that time was, you know, getting to know that was some of the first years that you were even about, you know, in the community. Yeah, I, I started as a as a server. Learned my way through that. And I came it like naturally to me. It was like a amazing you know, find with science. And it's like, hey, yet how did 
so go on. You said it came naturally. Yeah. And how did it, it make you feel? Well, part of it was my age too, because I was 27 at the time. And most servers I were working there were 21, 22, 23. You know, they, they show up hungover for the shift. I'm coming from my other job, baby on the way. Like I'm, I'm next level. Like I'm mature at this point. Yeah. And so I just treated my tables that with that maturity. Neither one of us have aged either. Not at all. Not at all. We both, both just mature. Yeah. And I think our, my tables realized that, okay, this isn't some 22-year-old. Nothing against 22-year-olds. My oldest son's 23. But you, when you pr- approach a table with professional courtesy, you know, politeness, it's just the way, the way I carried myself, yes. uh, they were like, oh, wait, this is... This is really good. So I would go home with lots of cash. And it was great, great gig. And I started loving it more and more. I started dreading going to the hospital and I couldn't wait to get to the restaurant. And then again, Paul told me, he said, he goes, think, think about the industry you're working in. He goes, if you work at a hospital or the post office or you know, somewhere else where people are, they're not happy to be there. They're being forced to be there without choosing to be there, but they just have to do it. At a restaurant, people are choosing to be here. Like everyone's happy that they have to be on a date or celebrating a birthday or retirement or whatever it is. Like people are actually are happy to be here. Mm-hmm. And that really clicked with me. And I'm like, I want to be, be a part of this. And the second I thought that, all of a sudden, the assistant manager was getting moved to Minerva's downtown, which opened up a management position. And I went to the manager and I said, uh, would you ever consider me for that position? And he's like, are you serious? Like, you couldn't believe I, I would want to make that switch. And they said, yeah. I said, I feel like I'll, if I don't do this, I'll regret it. And so I took the job, never looked back. Never, I've never stepped in the hospital since, well, to work. <laughs> to work. Yeah. So that was the beginning of my career in 2000 at Spazio. And now we've got two restaurants, a wine bar. Anything else in the works? And the catering company. And the catering company. That's right. So four businesses underneath underneath your business. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Our wine bar just celebrated our five year anniversary. Maribella just celebrated one year. Believe it or not, it's been open for a year. It's only uh, been a year. Yeah, I know. I know. It's. It, it seems like it. You know, there's something special about that place. <laughs> if the second we were done, all the interior work and everything was done, all the artwork was done, and we fired up the pizza oven and we did soft openings. Yeah. At the soft openings, people were like, it feels like this has been here. Well, like it was always like, been here. Like it was always it wasn't supposed brand, to be here. It didn't feel like a brand new restaurant. It felt like, like an it institution. Was always here, like a, yeah. Which is a pretty cool feeling because now we celebrate one year. People always are, wow, it's only been a year. Like it feels like five. Uh, but I always told people that because of our reputation and experience and the way the, we created a following at our wine bar, mm-hmm. Marabella had a four-year head start because we were busy from day one and we're still busy day 365. That's not a typical restaurant company. If you're opening a new concept, you've got to mm-hmm. prove it and you've got to market it and you got to you got to do a lot of stuff. And that's besides all the moving pieces that are occurring inside the restaurant and behind the scenes in the back of the house. And there's just a lot of you know, it's 10,000 details, which I thrive. I love it. I thrive in it. And so even though you're the idea guy, you love all the details. Yeah. That go behind it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Your, your wife as well. And then yeah. the medical background, very, he's got to be very dishwashed. Uh, her, her safe her safe place is the dishwasher, doing, doing dishes back there, which really, I mean, it goes such a long way. When they see like the owner of the restaurant back there doing dishes, like everyone on staff, like they notice, like we're not just... We don't just walk around and mm-hmm. show up where we want to. We're, the, mm-hmm. we're, we're in our businesses every single day. We're shaking hands with not just guests, but our staff. And we're making sure that they know that we appreciate them. We say thank you every single day to every single employee. doesn't matter if it's the dishwasher or general manager. Everyone is important. Absolutely. Every single person. We, we tell people all the time, imagine if we didn't have a dishwasher. What would happen? Well, dishes pile up. There's no more dishes from the kitchen to use. You're not turning tables. I mean, it's just how you know, one thing is escalated. If we didn't have a host, well, then no one would be greeting guests. No one would be seating guests. No one would be. That's been one of the challenges. So Mirabelle's been a been a huge success. But what's kind of been one of the high behind the scenes challenges that maybe 
other people don't know about. I mean, kind of, I call it regular restaurant stuff. You know, there's always, it's the opposite problem that I hear from a lot of my colleagues in town where they're struggling to find staff. Mm-hmm. We have an abundance of staff. And so we're, and we have just a lot of people that want to work for us, which is, again, but what a huge compliment to us mm-hmm. that if, if I open my email box right now, there's a couple of people emailing me saying, mm-hmm. how can I be a part of your team? Like a, I'm, a, I'm a bartender or I'm a server or I'm a, whatever it is. So kind of regular restaurant stuff is, you know, it's watching costs that you can control. Mm-hmm. You know, it's food Just costs. any business thing too. What so, can I control? Yeah. Food costs, wine costs, liquor costs, labor. Labor is a big one. One of our challenges is overtime with some of our employees. But imagine we have employees that want to work mm-hmm. that much for us, that they're willing to work overtime. So we're just trying to, can we scale it back? Can we get creative with your schedule? You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What are some of the true tactical things that you sure. do with your team? Tactically, we have a an awesome staff meeting every week. And well, we call it WTF, Wine Training Fridays. Of course it was. <laughs> I would have guessed that. Yeah, WTF. That's when we all get together. And yeah, <laughs> and we do talk about wine because wine is such a, mm-hmm. a central component of what we do in our version of hospitality. But then we always talk about, well, what does it mean to be hospitable? And so we, yeah, it's just every week, it just we just drill in that how we have so many regulars. And really, that w- that's been the one factor that has led us to where we are today. Because we opened our wine bar five years ago, 18 months before COVID hit. And the only reason we're still around today is because of our regulars. And then the Paul Van Barker, and I don't know if you remember, you remember Paul? Mm-hmm. Minerva's in 1977. He's pretty much retired, but he's still kind of involved. Yeah, he's just one of those guys. And he's got 30 properties. But he told me 20 plus years ago, he said, take care of everybody that walks through the doors. I said, yep, I, I do. I will. And then he, then he pauses and he says, but make sure you really take care of the regulars. I said, okay. He goes, because the regulars is what's going to get us through. And he listed all these like, but list of, you know, recession, down, you know, economic downturn, the 80s, uh, yeah. blizzards, whatever that could impact our business, the regulars will see us through. What he couldn't have predicted was a global pandemic, but had he known that was a possibility, he would have listed that and said the regulars will get you through. And, and that's that's held true. And so we talk about this every week about how they really take care of regulars because we know them by first name. We know their kids' names. We know their pets' names. We know where they went on vacation. Like we mm-hmm. really dig. But then I always finish by saying, if if it's a, if someone's first time at one of our restaurants, it's a chance to create a new regular. Yeah, you know, and it's just it just perpetuates itself. Technically, we use this thing called Ford. I'm sure you've heard of it, mm-hmm. Ford. So mm-hmm. we talk, you know, when you're establishing an important part of someone, we talk about but, family. Yes. Yeah, so go ahead with what? Yes, sure. Ford. Is. So family, occupation, recreation, and dreams. I remember the first time I told this at a staff training, and they all just kind of looked at me. I'm like, well, think about it. When you go to a table. Like I, I think about other businesses that think about customer interaction and how much time they get. Well, we get an hour and a half. That's typically is how long someone's sitting at a table. That's an hour and a half. You can get really get to know someone. Yeah. Yes. And of course, you have to be able to read your table. Some tables, they want invisible service. Just just bring it, refill our waters, bring our food, bring our drinks, and leave us alone. But most people, like 90% of the people that come in, they, they want to get to know you and vice versa. And so if we... The easiest things to ask about is, oh, do you have kids, married, do you do this, do that? Oh, who'd you bring today? Are we celebrating? You know, and people love talking about their family. And then finding out what they do for a living, because that's the next thing that people like to talk about. And then recreation, you know, when you get to that point where people are talking about their ski trip or kayaking or grooming dogs, whatever it is, whatever their passion is. Mm-hmm. But then I can't tell you how many customers that I've met probably in the last couple of years that have told me about how much they hate their job and they wish they had enough, you know, capital to open a business for scuba diving, whatever they're, you know, there's so many people are out there are so passionate, but that's a dream. And so when you get to that point with someone, they're a lifelong customer. You start sharing your dreams. Mm-hmm. Well, that's deeply personal when you start doing that. Exactly. Who do you feel is the biggest influence on kind of setting up the importance of customer service for you? I mean, clearly, I mean, you listed Paul, but and that kind of gets into your history as well, because everything that after you got to Sioux Falls, everything you really worked in was not a customer service. Right. No, I worked in 
all I knew was hospitals and research labs. Not a lot of customer service was going on at those times with that. Not at that time. So what's one of the things that you've learned over the years? You've been in many different restaurant scenarios, many different customer service type of things. What's something that like, I'm so glad I learned that lesson because that's helped me now today. It's a really good question. Wow. There's a couple. I once had an owner of a restaurant tell me, well, I had an idea for a wine bar. Well, <laughs> 20 years ago, I had an okay. idea for a wine bar. Okay. And one of the owners said to me, when you own your own restaurant, you can do whatever you want. And this has kind of stuck with me. It, but it, and it's funny, going back to something you asked me a long, from a long time ago in my childhood, like, what, where'd you get this drive from? When I was in high school, remember I mentioned I took AP classes, what I left out was to get there, I was in regular algebra. I don't know why I remember this. I was in regular algebra as a freshman in high school. And as I saw where I wanted to go, which was to medical school, I knew I had to take AP classes and I wanted to take AP calculus. But if I stayed in algebra freshman year- You were never gonna get there. I wasn't gonna get there. Mm-hmm. So sophomore year rolls around and I go to my guidance counselor and I said, I really wanna take AP calc. And he goes, well, you're taking geometry this year. And I said, well, what if I took geometry and algebra team this year? And he goes, well, no one's ever done that. And I said, great. But then I, I said, can it be done? And he goes, Sign me up. yeah, it could, because you don't need necessarily need the geometry in order to take the algebra too. I said, then I want to do that. And I started my little neighbor lady, just a nosy lady, told my mom, <laughs> don't don't let him, because she was a teacher. She said, don't let him take two math classes in the same year in high school. He'll, he'll, he'll fill a boat. There's no way you can do it. There's no way. And just people telling me there's no way, or you're the... No one's ever done this. So you're going to be the first. That drives me. Are you kidding me? I aced both classes, took trig next year, and then AP Calc as a senior. And that's satisfying to me to be able to, not to say prove people wrong, but prove uh, that you, know, you can. People that, yeah. I mean, prove that too trust can. me, there's been naysayers over the years. Oh, you know, a wine bar concept won't work. No one's done. No one's doing it. If it, if it worked, everyone would be doing it, right? I'm like, no, nah, that's not the way I think. I think if it's an original concept, and really hospitality, it's, it's not created by you know the floors and the ceilings and the fixtures and how cool it looks or what kind of music you play. Or it, it's people. People create warmth. I mean, I had so many people say, they come in all, all the time, it just feels so warm in here. And they're not talking about the temperature. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the, the environment. It's yeah. What's a hard lesson you had to learn? Uh, besides not getting into medical school three years in a row? Yes. Yes, beyond that. I'm still one. sore about it. No, I'm not. I, you know what? You know, I'm not. You'd be in a completely different place, though, had you? Well, who, I was going to say. Who knows what you would have been, but you went to- I was just going to say, I'm glad all that happened. Yeah. Just imagine I'd be a doctor. Who knows what kind of schedule I'd have or yes. phone call shit. You know how it is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, gosh, hard lesson. You know, I did, I don't talk about this a lot, but we did have an investor- when we went to open our wine bar. And it wasn't our wine bar, it was a different concept, but similar wine bar, wine shop type thing. And two days before, I get a phone call from one of the partners and said, oh, this this isn't going to work out. And that was it. And that was it. I never heard from them, nothing. And so we had all these plans and this is going to be our first business that we ever own on our own because for years, you know, I've been a manager at Spazia. I was a wine rep for a couple of years. I was a GM at Westbury Hill Country Club, sales and marketing at Ferenson. And this was going to be our first, like, we're going to own this. It's our baby. It's our thoughts and vision and concept. And so to have it just, just fall through, uh, I remember calling a friend of mine and I said, I feel like I just took a bullet. And he goes, I know it feels that way today, but just give it time, be still. And you're going to realize you just dodged a bullet. And he couldn't have been more right because, again, looking back, had that gone through, we wouldn't we wouldn't be downtown. We would be somewhere else. And who knows if we'd still be open today after, especially with COVID. I mean, no, that. So yeah. So then, that was that was probably the mm-hmm. one of my toughest times. But yeah, you know, my, my wife, you know, she's just she's a, I mean, she's. There's a reason we've been married for 26 years and we've always worked together and we still work together. She's how does she, she how does she's she, that she's that rock. Like she she knows I need to dream and overreach sometimes. 
Yeah. But she's the one that says, okay, let's, let's reel it back in. Let's reassess. What are we, what are you going to do now? Like, do you still want to do this? I'm like, yeah, I still want, this has been my dream for 20 years. We're opening a wine bar. She's like, okay, what do you need to talk to? So I talked to a couple of people I've gotten to know through the restaurant business. They're in the investment uh-huh. kind of venture capitalist game. And they told me to put together an investment group. And so I started making phone calls. The first person I called said, we want to partner with you because we think whatever you do is going to be great. We don't know anything about the restaurant business. We don't even drink wine. We just want to be part of what you're doing. And I said, oh, that's what kind. Thank you. So you want to be part of my investment group? And they're like, well, yes and no. We want to be investors, but we don't want, we want to be your only partner. So they they were willing to put in all the money to get our wine bar started up. My mouth just dropped open. Yeah. Wow. So we got wow. that thing started up in 2018 and then- Really good relationship with them. Completely like the best silent partners you'd ever ask for. Super supportive, not intrusive. They would come in and, and support the restaurant and spend money there. And then 2020 hit and it affected their business. And so they started calling me and they were like, we need our money back. And I'm like, well, we're just, we, I just shut down the dining room for, I don't know how long, like indefinitely. Cause at that time we didn't know how long it was going to last when we were going to reopen, if we were going to reopen. And uh, anyway, lots of details in the mix, but by June of 2020, we bought out our partners and we've owned our, our library 100% since then. That's that's gritty. It's also a lot of risk-taking. Yeah. Lot of, a lot. <laughs> both gritty and risk-taking. Talk to my wife. Yeah. yeah. She loves it. <laughs> gives her ulcers, gives you excitement. <laughs> wow. Wow. You know, I, but you the, took a the, chance and you guys took a chance on yourselves. We just, I was going to say, yeah. it's, it's betting chance on yourself. yourself. And I would always bet on me and my wife yeah, and my family. They're just, we're, we're going to get it done. What's one of the pieces of advice your wife tends to give you? <laughs> stop. Stop, stop, drop, like, and roll. Stop. <laughs> stop. Like, I'll come home and I'll be like, oh, did you see that, that building? Is it is available? And she just goes, stop. stop. I mean, not, she would never tell me to stop dreaming, but essentially she's saying, just stop. Let's take just care stop of for it. a second. Yeah, I'm always, I don't know. Like, yeah, when you're an entrepreneur, you know what I mean? Like you always, you see opportunity. I see opportunity everywhere. So yeah, it's about picking and choosing and finding the right opportunities at the right time. Um, yeah, How long like, did you think about, clearly you had a wine bar in mind for, 20 years, but how long were you actually really serious about getting it going? How long did it take from kind of thought process to, or were you always thinking about it? And then it's just finally, here's the opportunity I, was, I have. I was always thinking about it for 20 years, but mm-hmm. the four years before opening Wine Bar, I was at Ferns and Brewing. Mm-hmm. And I was there from day one. It was you know before the tanks even house, before there was a logo, before. So to be part of a startup at that level, mm-hmm. base level, and to see it into for instance, you know, it's everywhere. The cans are everywhere, lines pot tap everywhere, you know, whatever it is. They like now you can, you know, they've been open for how long now? Eight or nine years and, and people know what it is. So to see a brand like that go from inception to success in four years, I thought, I wonder one I wonder if I could do this, you know, for me and my family. And so, yeah, it's betting yourself. Like, I bet I know enough. I bet I have enough of a network. I bet I have an, a good enough reputation. And yeah, we opened and people came, but it's evolved a lot in the last five years in our wine bar. Do you remember when we first opened, we had, our menu was like two salads, two charcuterie boards, and four panini. And that was it. We didn't have desserts at that point when we first opened. And it was good enough for Hey, we, like we're very wine centric. It's yeah. about wine tasting. Maybe we'll do wine dinner someday. Because the the ultimate dream for me over the last three years was to have my own Italian restaurant. That was always in the back of my mind. But I thought, let's open a wine bar to kind of separate toe and see if we can create a brand. Then maybe someday, maybe our wine bar would become an Italian restaurant, or we just could open another one. So we started with a small menu. And what I noticed is people would come in and they'd say, "Yeah, we'll do a charcuterie board and two glasses of wine." I'm like, great. Bring it over. And then they go somewhere else and have dinner. And then they go, hey, can we get our ticket now? Because we have reservations at, you know, Minerva's Parkers, wherever they're going next. 
And I'm like, well, that's that's crappy. Like I, I, w- I don't want to just be a stop. I want to be the stop. And so the answer is more food. It just is, you know. So it, so the the joke back then is that you know we we open as a, a wine bar that happened to have some food. And now fast forward five years, we're it's just it's a it's a full fledged restaurant, full menu. Let me let me ask a question. I want to go on the wine journey a little bit. Sure. So, were you always into wine? Did you have a passion for a long time? Um, like, did you grow up having a passion, or did your jobs that you were in create that passion and that that love? So, you're a master. Or what are you? A master level one master? Uh, master level, one. level one. Oh, level, level one. But but that comes still with training, studying, sure. and doing the work in order to make that happen. You know, as a as a kid, you get plenty of wine bar. Don't you think you should know something about wine, right? You probably should. Probably should. I need to go back and study. <laughs> that's just, I mean, that's the funny part. My son is the, our oldest son, Dante. He's a level one sommelier as well. He passed last year. He actually passed when he was twenty-one. He, did, he took it intentionally a week before his twenty-second birthday because he wanted to say he wanted to be able to say I was twenty-one when he got my sommelier. Anyway, but he's now realizing the more he learns. The more he realizes he doesn't know anything, and it's true. Amen I mean, for life. I say that's that. That's like a life statement right there. I say that all the time. I mean, the, the more I learn, the more I realize there's so much more to learn. Yeah, and I love it. I, I love the wine industry. I love geography. There's so much geography that goes with wine that a lot of people don't. And traveling in a different way in your mind. Yeah. Yes. And so when we educate people, we yeah, it's a lot of us talking about where it's from. You know. Where, how the sun shines and how, how it rains, the slopes, and you know where is the ocean compared to where the winery at Dalton Vineyard is? Yeah, it's 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 just so romantic to me. It's romantic, but I, one of those things that you don't realize as a kid. It, you know, I I tasted Chianti Classico. That's the first wine I ever tasted as, yeah. as a kid. I presume because there was always a county bottle of county on the table every single night. And so you think, oh, I'm Italian. I grew up drinking wine, whatever. That's what got me into it. And that's really not. It was what I worked, got first got into the restaurants. And of course it was an Italian restaurant. <clears throat> and I started learning more and more about Italian wine. And so I I redid that whole wine list way back then. It was a really progressive wine list, but it was like 95% of it was, well, maybe not that much. Maybe 90% of it was Italian with some California and France, Australia sprinkled in. But I really wanted to make a statement that we should have wine that matches the menu. And so, well, fast forward 20 plus years, Marabella, it's 100% Italian wine on that list because it matches our food menu, which is 100% Italian. So I'm a big proponent of matching food with wine and where it's from is a big deal. You know, acidity levels, flavor profiles. I mean, how can you not pair a Chianti Classico with a Bolognese? That's just, that's just so natural <laughs> to me. Speaking of um, how that rolls off your tongue, your recipes for your restaurant, mm-hmm. Marabella's, any of those family? They're, the Bolognese in particular is, is a, it, it's part of its for, family. For, you know, was it Anna or is it Anna? No, no, no yeah. yeah. Part of it is family recipe, but the way we work our restaurants with, you know, we have an executive chef, he has to be able to own every single one of those recipes. You know what I mean? Like he has to be committed to it, believe in it, be able to teach others it. And so we took recipes to him and took ideas to him. And he was so great. He's we have such a great executive chef. His name is Adam Schumacher. He's the dad of three girls. He would ask me, So what kind of things did you eat when you were growing up? You know, he just wanted it was so interested. As we're then this is back in the menu design phase. Because he'd, you know, he'd sit with me and Mary Beth and we'd be like, he's like, Well, what's a what's a memory of what you ate in Florence or what you ate growing up? And so I described things to him, shared some recipes, and then we let him take it over. And so he tweaked some things that make sense for, you know, it's a commercial restaurant. Mm-hmm. And man, it's, the food is outstanding. I just, I'm really proud of it. Recently, my wife and I took Dante, our oldest son, and our nephew, Hank, who's also a level one sommelier, and he runs Bricks Wine Room for us. We took them to Napa. And every meal we had, and we went to some nice restaurants. Well, okay. With the exception of one dinner, but every other restaurant, we're like, we're we're, we're so spoiled. We're spoiled at Marabella. Mm-hmm. Like there's, 
Mm-hmm. And it's funny, I hear it from guests and I'm like, oh, you're being too kind. With guests coming all the time from in Chicago, Miami, New York, wherever they're from. And they're like, this is like this is better than what I just had in Chicago. This is better than what I just had in Italy. This is better than, you could open this place in, in New York City. That's a big comp. I'm like, huge comp, huge. Yeah. It's tumbling. Yes. But we got it where we traveled and we're like, man, these people are <laughs> like, we have food with the Bronzino. And we're like, we ordered Branzino and it, it was you can, nowhere near. You can really mess up Branzino. I just yeah. ordered it to this last weekend somewhere and we were we were traveling and I was like, and no. No, funny. So, so I, agree, I agree with that for you. So well, getting kind of out of what you do, you've got a lot going on. You've always been busy. I presume you're kind of a go. What do you do for you to find Ricardo? Like what... What are things that are passions outside of of work, outside of that to keep yourself whole? That's important as you're doing everything you're doing. So how do you do that for you? Absolutely. You know, we, it's a great question. I mean, family is what recharges me. As far as recreation, I used to coach soccer for many, many, many years. If I ever really need to get like out of my head, then I'll, I'll just take a soccer ball out and start juggling it. You know, it's just, it's all muscle memory anyway, you know, mm-hmm. and they can start doing things without thinking about them. But no, I, I spend a lot of time with my wife mm-hmm. and because I want to. Like, you know, people are always like, oh, you, can you, come, you should come out with us or do this or like, like, I don't do any of that. I don't do boys weekends. I don't have a man cave. I don't find reasons to not be with her. It's, I, it's the opposite. I find reasons, well, what can we do together? So for us together, it's it's really all about our kids. And our kids are transitioning. We have two in college, one just graduated, we have one getting married. It's this next phase of life type things that we yeah. we just I don't know. We just hold on to and talk about what, what does the future look like. We do like to travel. Typically every spring we go to Florida just to kinda escape the winter for a little bit. Usually it's a long weekend type thing. We try to get to Napa. It's been in once every two years. We're trying to make it a, an annual mm-hmm. thing so we can start exploring other wine areas, not just Napa. But it's so hard to not go back to Napa because we have such we have so many friends there. You know, so we always go to see old friends. We we, we make new friends. Yeah, I love the, the hospitality out there is incredible. As you've gone through life, and this is probably where I'll end with us, because thank you for your time today. I don't want to monopolize you on a wonderful Monday evening. What's set your standard for yourself? What guides you? Kind of that guiding principle that's led you in life. I mean, the, for for me, it's and I keep staying family, but it's this is the this is so important to me to know that decisions I make, how I'm perceived in the community, legacy we're leaving behind. That's what legacy is that? What kind of legacy do you want that to be? Just uh, it's so hard for me to put the words. One of the things that I try to teach our kids all the time is is how to be humble because I see my kids sometimes they walk in the restaurant and you just oh I'm like no he's gonna be cocky today I can tell he's just coming in he's kind of arrogant he's talking to people like he owns the place which technically someday he will or specifically my oldest by the way and I and we just have these talks where uh, humility is what separate I think is what separates like successful people or really successful people. You know, people that just, I mean, you're one of them. There's lots of people here in town. Of course, lots of people that I love to read about, you know, Chanta Julius. Have you ever read the book Unreasonable Hospitality? No, I have not. It's a great read. I love, I love good reads. Yeah. Where these people are, they're just, they're, they're driven people. I find myself in, in these people where they they talk about this. So, this kind of wrote a reasonable hospitality. Um, owns the best restaurant in the world, and that is a thing. They give awards out for the back, the top fifty restaurants in the world. And he's in New York City, and the first year they were nominated, he was all excited. He went there with his partner. It was in London, England. And they got all dressed up, and they're like going back and forth. Well, what number do you think we're like? Because it was top fifty. I'm like you think we're thirty-five. As far as like, oh, I think we're out. I think we're like at least 30. So they start the award ceremony and they said, 
first award coming at number 50 is a new entry this year at 11 Madison Park, and that was our restaurant. And so for them to go there and almost get cocky in a way, like we know we have one of the best restaurants in the world, and to get 50, like in his mind, they lost. But I think those humbling experiences, I mean, it goes right back to you graduate from college, not getting what I want. I miss, that's humbling. And then going through all the different phases of my life, like her, her path, and then finally going, I'm going to open my own business. And then an investor pull out two days before where it pull the trigger. And that's humbling. I mean, just there's lots of things like that. And so if that's one thing I can pass along to my to our children, it's approach everything with humility. And I always tell, and I've, I've been told staff this because there's, Couple staff people like to go around there, like, wait. Oh, I tell people all the time, this is the, this is the best restaurant in town. We're the hottest ticket. We're the ever, we're the hottest ticket. I said, here's the thing there's a difference between me going around town saying, hey, we're the best, come to my restaurant. And it's a completely other thing, a much more powerful thing when others are saying that about us. I said, so you don't, guess what? We don't have to say it. Everyone else is saying it. Let them say it. We don't have to say it. And so, our kids are learning that through the way we just we approach community, and of course, when people come in and they're so complimentary, like over the top, and I'm like, "Thank you," but we have a lot of work to do. We still have more work to do. That's you know? how. That's why I approach business too. Yeah. Like, thank you, and we're constantly trying to work always. on on improvements mm-hmm. and making things better because we can always be better. There's always something more that we can be doing to try to improve improve mm-hmm. processes. Ricardo, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I think, you know, the whole podcast was wonderful. And some of the pearls that you have at the end for what you mean for success, for you, for your family, for business. I agree. I think that's what a great leader is. I think that's what a great business owner is. And you are one of those people I look at as having those qualities and so in my mind, you are an absolute success as well. What's well, sweet of you. Thank you. I feel the same way about you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.